Please remain standing for the reading of Scripture. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. If you'd like to use the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 991. 991. 1 Timothy 1, 118 through 20. Here now, this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. O gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word as it has been read. We ask for the Holy Spirit to come and to teach us to work your truth deeply into our hearts, to prick us, to convict us, to comfort us, to, cre- uh, to send us out courageously from this place with confidence in your word. We pray that you do all of this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week, we got a chance to start a new sermon series on the conscience. We introduced this concept of the conscience as God's witness in the soul. And we based this on the biblical assumption that everyone is a sinner, that our hearts, all of our hearts, have been corrupted by sin, that we have sinned against God and against each other by what we have done and what we have, by what we have not done We have no excuse, the scriptures say, meaning that we can't say we didn't know what was right or wrong. And why is that? Because God's moral demands, the moral demands of his law have been written on our hearts and our consciences confirm the reality of our guilt and the rightness of God's judgment. So when your conscience is working properly, it won't let you get away with anything. It'll make its presence felt. It'll testify to the fact that you are doing something wrong. And I know none of us like that feeling. We don't like the feeling of a guilty conscience. But like I mentioned last week, friends, the ability to feel a guilty conscience is an unforeseen gift. It's just like the ability to feel pain. I think all of us are naturally pain-averse, If we could have it our way, we would never feel pain again, to never hurt, to never suffer. I used to think that way. I used to want that. That is until I learned about a rare genetic condition where certain individuals are born without the ability to feel physical pain. I I saw a show on this. Uh, it It was on cable. It was about these young children who were discovered to have this particular condition. And my first thought was to think, well, that's so cool. That's like a a mutant ability. You could be a superhero with that. 
But then the show went on to talk about how extremely dangerous this condition is, especially for young children. This poor toddler, she was always biting her fingers raw. Her, her, her tongue was literally destroyed because she would just chew it like bubble gum without even realizing what she was doing. She would break her leg and just keep on playing as if nothing happened. She could be touching a hot stove and not even know it. So while we think of it as a blessing to never hurt again, for these parents, for these kids, it was a curse. They would have welcomed the ability to feel pain. Well, in the same way, we should welcome the prodding and the pricking of a properly functioning conscience. It's really when your conscience has grown cold and silent, when it's no longer speaking to you, no longer telling you that you're in the wrong, that, my friend, is when you should be worried. The conscience is a very tender thing. If you keep ignoring it, if you keep neglecting it, if you keep abusing it and going against it, it will grow numb, it will grow callous, it will desensitize and no longer work the way it was meant to. It will no longer be able to warn you when you're really in the face of danger, the dangers of sin, the dangers of judgment. It will no longer be able to warn you. So this morning, we're going to be talking about what happens if you don't take care of your conscience, if you don't take care to listen to it. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, and we'll start by considering what's at stake if we continually neglect our conscience. We'll look first at the danger of shipwrecking the faith. Then we have to ask, how does one arrive at this point? this point where there is a strong possibility of shipwrecking faith, we'll, we'll, set, we'll con- secondly consider the damage one inflicts by rejecting your conscience. And lastly, we're going to look at what we can do to discipline ourselves into cultivating a good conscience. Those three points are uh, written there for you in an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Let's start by recognizing the danger of shipwrecking the faith. This is a concept that the Apostle Paul alludes to in his first letter to Timothy. Here he is writing a letter to the young pastor of the church in Ephesus. He is warning Timothy of false teachers who have crept into the fledgling church and are threatening to destroy the faith of of many in the church. And so chapter 1 begins immediately in verse 3 with this warning of false teachers. And it ends with Paul recounting his own conversion testimony in verses 12 to 16. Now, I think, you know, for, for many of us, uh, the story of Paul's dramatic conversion is so familiar that we just take it for granted. We forget just how unthinkable, how unfathomable it must have been for the early church that the chief adversary of the Christian faith has now become its chief advocate. What a powerful testimony that a man with such a tragic beginning could have such a marvelous ending to his story. What a gospel. But Paul's story runs in sharp contrast to two other men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, as we're introduced in verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander were most likely pastors 
They were elders in the church of Ephesus since they apparently had the authority to teach. Because Paul later on in the letter says that the teaching authority of the church was a responsibility of pastors, of elders. Well, they had an authority to teach. Now, they were teaching falsely. They were abusing that authority, but they had it. Now, Paul says in verse 19 that these two pastors had made shipwreck of their faith. Let's just read actually these three verses again. Start back in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, Paul was no stranger to shipwrecks. He personally survived three of them. So it's not surprising that he chose the metaphor of a shipwreck to describe the falling away from the faith. Friends, to shipwreck the faith means to abandon the faith, to reject the core tenets of the faith, of the gospel. Now, later, we're going to look at one theory as to what doctrines these men particularly rejected and what they were falsely teaching. But the point is, when someone shipwrecks the faith, it means that they appeared at one point to be gospel-believing Christians, but now for For whatever reason, they have rejected some essential aspect of the faith. Now we have no confidence to call them Christians. They've wrecked their faith. They've shipwrecked it. Now just think about how shipwrecks normally occur. The vessel just sailing along, by all appearances, just fine. It's nothing out of the ordinary. But due to Carelessness or indifference, the captain and the crew ignore certain warnings. They don't take necessary precautions. They go full steam ahead, and suddenly they find themselves on the bottom of the sea. And no one saw it coming. When the RMS Titanic left the port of Southampton, England, en route to New York City, she left with such glory and grandeur. What a marvelous beginning Many people, including the passengers on her maiden voyage, believed the Titanic to be unsinkable. When embarking passenger Mrs. Sylvia Cladwell asked the deckhand if the rumors were true, he's reported to have answered, Ma'am, God himself could not sink this ship. Who would have guessed on that day that the Titanic's story would end at the bottom of the North Atlantic? Well, the same goes for Hymenaeus and Alexander. I'm sure when they were first installed as pastors in the Ephesian church, no one would have guessed the shipwreck. They had a great start, a marvelous beginning. But as our passage proves, how a story begins is not nearly as important as to how it ends. You can start off as a pastor or as a persecutor, but end on a completely different note. The big question really is, how will your story end? Because in the end, it's the end that counts. Friends, we have to consider the real risk for professing believers, those who claim to be Christians, there is a risk of making shipwreck of your faith. Now, I realize this opens a whole can of worms, 
uh, it opens up the question of whether or not you can lose your salvation. To shipwreck your faith sure sounds like you're losing your salvation. Is that what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander? Were they saved at one point and then they did something to now lose that status? Did they fall out of God's saving grace? This is a question, of course, about eternal security, about whether it's possible to lose your salvation. To that, I'll say two things. First, at the end of the day, in order to rightly apply this particular text, it doesn't matter where you stand on the doctrine of eternal security. Because those who believe you can lose your salvation and those who believe you can't would both agree that if you die in a state of unbelief, if your story ends with a shipwrecked faith, then, that it, that, then it means that you're not saved. It doesn't matter how long you were a member of a church. It doesn't matter how long and how involved you were in, your, in, in, in the life of a church, how your story ends is what matters in the end. The only difference between the two positions, the only difference is that those who believe in eternal security also believe that God will see to it that His children, that those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, those who have repented and believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that God will see to it that true believers do not end their stories with a shipwreck. He will personally see to it that you end well. So the second thing I'll say is that I do believe the Bible teaches the the eternal security of true believers. Let me just offer two supporting verses. In John chapter 10, verse 27 to 28, Jesus says this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says that believers can be confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is the day of his return. So the Bible teaches that Jesus knows his own and guards his own from making a shipwreck of their faith. True believers may stumble for a season, but they'll eventually be restored because God will not fail to complete what he started in them. But then, of course, we have to ask ourselves, how do you then explain the very real experience that many of us have, 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 have had of friends or family members who started in the faith but eventually fell away and have stayed away? Well, I would say they probably were never saved, no matter how involved they were in a campus fellowship or in a church. Listen with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. 1 John 2, 19. Listen to what it says about those who have left the faith. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Did you hear that? If they had been of us, been truly saved, they would have continued with us. That right there is the doctrine of eternal security.
But they went out. They shipwrecked their faith that it might become plain that they are not of us, that they weren't actually saved. So if we go back to our passage, I think we can believe in the doctrine of eternal security and at the same time believe a shipwreck of faith is possible for those who profess to be Christians, even those who serve as leaders in the church. It's disturbing to think that a Christian could lose his or her salvation, that Jesus could lose one of his sheep. But I think what's far more disturbing and dangerous is to convince yourself that you could never fall away simply because of a profession of faith that you made in the past or because of all the years of involvement that you put into the church. Shipwrecking your faith is a risk for everyone who professes to be a Christian. That's why Paul gives Timothy instructions in verse 18 to guard against such an outcome. Paul's counsel to Timothy is this. If you want a good ending to your story of faith, then you're going to have to fight for it. You will have to fight the good fight of the faith, wage the good warfare. The point is, you can't coast along in the Christian life and expect it to end well. The Christian life is not a leisurely cruise on a nice, calm lake. No, it is a battle to go upstream in a mighty river that has a vicious current that is flowing downstream towards a waterfall. And at the bottom of this waterfall are jagged rocks that will destroy any vessel that falls into it. There's no standing still in the Christian life. Too many of us are just floating along, thinking the Christian life is a leisurely cruise, and we're totally unprepared to wage the good warfare and the fight against a shipwreck of faith. And this leads to our second point. To better resist a shipwreck of faith, we need to understand exactly how it occurs. Well, we should consider what happened to these two men, to Hymenaeus and Alexander. How did they shipwreck their faith? Well, Paul says they did it by rejecting their conscience. So let's consider the damage of rejecting the conscience. And I think it's important to note, first of all, that you can damage your conscience in one of two ways. You can damage your conscience by, by making it either oversensitive or insensitive. Now, in our text, Paul focuses on the latter, on insensitive consciences. Uh, they get that way if you just constantly reject them, if you keep ignoring your conscience until its voice gets so weak that it just goes silent. That's how you sear a conscience, as Paul puts it, making it insensitive and no longer able to warn you of danger. We're going to be focusing more on that one this morning. But let me just quickly mention oversensitive consciences. You can also damage your conscience by overburdening it with rules that are not even found in Scripture. If the problem of an insensitive seared, consci seared conscience is that it goes silent, rarely ever accusing you, well, then an oversensitive conscience is always screaming at you, 
It's always accusing you. It is too easily wounded. And that's why Paul describes those with an oversensitive conscience as those who are weak in faith. He talks about this in Romans chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at these weak consciences later in this series when we tackle that passage. The focus in our text, though, is on seared consciences that have grown insensitive due to constant rejection. And this is found for us in verse 19. Paul tells Timothy to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, what does that mean? Well, when he talks about holding faith, Paul is telling Timothy, you have to hold on to the essentials of the faith, the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Hold it firmly. Hold it faithfully. Hold it courageously in the face of, of all this opposition of these false teachers. Now, when he talks about holding a good conscience, well, that's another way of saying, mind your conscience. He's telling Timothy to listen to his conscience. Like every ship captain, Christians have a moral compass called a conscience that we rely upon for guidance. And if we don't listen to our consciences when they point us in a particular direction, then we'll eventually abandon the gospel or twist and, and adjust sound doctrine and end up shipwrecking the faith. That's what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. Look back at verse 19 and notice how Paul says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. This, this is a singular pronoun, is referring specifically to a good conscience. This is how it works. It's that act of rejecting their good consciences that led them then to reject the faith, to make shipwreck of it. Let's think about how this works out here. Somehow, somehow Hymenaeus and Alexander acted against conscience. They didn't listen to their moral compass. They rejected a good conscience, and they tolerated a guilty conscience. They neglected all of its warnings. We don't know exactly what sin they were dealing with. It doesn't say. We can assume, though, that their consciences initially worked properly. They initially accused them, but they just ignored its voice. And after repeated abuse, their consciences grew numb and calloused, and the voice grew weaker and weaker and softer and softer. And in order to silence the voice for good, they rejected the faith. They shipwrecked it. They abandoned ship. They threw out the essentials of the faith. This, at least, is what we know happened to Hymenaeus, because Paul actually mentions him again in his second letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, he mentions the guy again. Paul says there he's warning of false teachers like Hymenaeus, and these false teachers have swerved from the truth, and they are now teaching that the resurrection of the dead has already taken place. Hymenaeus was denying a future bodily resurrection. Now, what's the advantage of that? Like, if you're trying to silence a guilty conscience for good, why would denying the resurrection help you? Well, because the New Testament teaching on a future resurrection for all is always connected to a future judgment for all. Paul teaches in places like 2 Corinthians 5.10 that everyone 
everyone will be raised with resurrection bodies to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for all the deeds done in the body. And so just think about this. If you deny a future resurrection, if you claim that it's already taken place in some kind of spiritual sense, well, then you don't have to worry about a future judgment anymore for all the deeds that you've done in the body. And by denying these realities, you can now silence your conscience for good, and you can go on sinning without any reservation. I've been in ministry long enough to see individuals who profess to be Christians slide down a very similar path. They start off by making certain compromises, compromises that they know are wrong because their consciences immediately speak up. Their consciences cry out, you shouldn't date that person. You shouldn't be watching that. You know you just stretched the truth there. Okay, that was a blatant lie. You shouldn't have gotten so mad. You really shouldn't have said that. Friends, that's the conscience speaking. But by continued abuse through continued neglect, our consciences grow numb. They get desensitized. And yet, the conscience is not completely gone, so every so often you do hear that quiet voice perk up. And the guilt still eats away at you in the quiet of the night. And so you're faced, really, with two options. One, you can repent of your sins and have your guilt forgiven by Jesus for good. Or, two, you can change your beliefs so that you don't feel guilty anymore. And you would hope that more people would choose option one and listen to their consciences, but unfortunately, many would rather entertain new interpretations of certain passages and to accept unorthodox teachings if it helps them justify some prior action or decision, or if it puts to rest any lingering feelings of guilt. Friends, if you ever find yourself open to changing a long-held conviction of yours, mainly because it'll quiet your conscience and you hopefully won't feel so bad anymore about something you did or something you're currently doing, you at least need to realize what's happening. You're on the verge of making shipwreck of your faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they chose option two, and they made shipwreck. And so in verse 20, we read that Paul dealt with them by handing them over to Satan, meaning that he put them out of the church. He put them into Satan's realm, which is how he describes the world outside of the church. Listen again to verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul exercised discipline, and he put them out of the church. But notice how he still holds out hope. Yes, they have shipwrecked their faith, but their story hasn't ended. They're not dead yet. There's still breath in them, so they're not beyond the reach of God's grace. They can still be saved. They can learn something from this discipline. That's why Paul hopes that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 
Friends, the point here is that you need to realize just how tender and how delicate your conscience is. You have to take care of it. You have to take care of, to, uh, to avoid damaging it. You can weaken a conscience and make it oversensitive when you burden it with too many rules and you obsess over issues that aren't even sins. A weak conscience, as we've said before, is a strict conscience. It's too strict, even stricter than God's. But then, as we see here in our passage, you can damage your conscience by searing it, by abusing it through constant neglect. And over time, it gets numb and calloused and eventually just goes silent. Now, typically, you would expect to find weak consciences among those who are prone to legalism and judgmentalism, those prone to obsession over the law, over all the rules. And you would expect to find seared consciences among those who are prone to lawlessness, to immorality, to immoral behavior, those who are prone to disregard the law. And there is truth to those generalizations. But the irony is that both kinds of damage can actually occur in the same person to the same conscience. Turn over with me to chapter 4. Look at verse 2. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul refers to the false teachers that he's been warning Timothy about, and he calls them liars who have, whose consciences are seared. So they had seared consciences, insensitive consciences. But then he goes on to say that these same consciences, though seared and insensitive towards some serious issues, were oversensitive when it came to certain non-issues. They were treating good things like marriage and certain foods as being sinful and ungodly. Like the Pharisees, they were straining out, they were known for straining out gnats while swallowing camels. They were majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. They were ignoring serious sins while obsessing over non-issues. You know, this dynamic can really happen in any of us, in any church. This really explains how churches in generations past could be so strict in prohibiting certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of, of music that you can listen to, or, or prohibiting you from dancing, while at the same time not batting an eye to racial segregation in their congregation or opposing things like good things like interracial marriage. So apparently... We're all good at straining out gnats while swallowing camels. And this is why we need to pay more attention to this category of the conscience. And growing as a disciple is going to involve growing in the discipline of cultivating a good conscience. This leads to our third and final point. We're able to counter the typical damage we do to our consciences by mindfully cultivating them helping them to grow stronger and more aligned with God's will as revealed in God's scriptures. In the Disney film Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket tells Pinocchio, always let your conscience be your guide. And that's generally good advice, but as we've already seen, our consciences can be damaged. They can be 
oversensitive or insensitive. They could be weak or seared. So the voice of your conscience, friends, is not equivalent to God's. That voice in your head accusing you or excusing you is not necessarily what God is trying to say to you. So Jiminy's Cricket's advice goes a bit too far when he says, always. Always let your conscience be your guide. Well, for those who ascribe no higher authority over you than yourself, well, then that's probably the best advice you're going to get. If you are your highest authority, well, then yes, you should always listen to your conscience. But for those of us who ascribe the highest authority to God and to God's Word, we recognize that our consciences are not absolute conscience is not king, God is. And so we cultivate our consciences by submitting them under his authority, the authority of his word. So let's say you're dealing with an oversensitive, weak conscience. What do you do if that's where you're at? Well, you have to first be open to listen. Listening, of course, first of all, to Scripture You have to make a habit of regularly reading the Bible so that your convictions are constantly being analyzed and tested by the Scriptures. And then it's important to be intentional about being in community with Christians who come from different backgrounds. Because if you're always surrounded by people who are raised like you and think like you, well, then it's easy to justify an overly sensitive conscience. But if you're listening to and you're learning from people who love Jesus and love his word, but they come from different backgrounds, then you might discover that what you consider to be a matter of right and wrong ends up really being a matter of preference based on culture, based on upbringing. And then you're going to have to begin a process of calibrating your conscience. As you study the word, as you test your convictions by it, you'll probably end up subtracting some issues from the category of right and wrong and moving them on into the category of opinion and preference. We're going to get more into this whole process of calibrating your conscience in a subsequent message. Now, what then, though, do you do if your issue is not an oversensitive, weak conscience, but an insensitive, possibly seared conscience? Well, Obviously, if your conscience has already been completely seared, then you're probably not aware of that, and you'd probably disagree or simply not care if someone pointed it out. In that case, it really might require an act of church discipline, like what Paul referred to in verse 20, in order to arouse your conscience. There's still hope for anyone in that situation, but we're going to have to leave it to the mercy and will of God. But if your conscience is growing numb, but it hasn't gone completely silent, well, then I believe that God has providentially brought you here this morning to hear this word. Friend, you are being warned. Warned that you are searing your conscience by constantly abusing it. Warned that you might be on the verge of making shipwreck of your faith. But God also brought you here this morning to remind you of a saying, one that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Friends, Jesus came to save. He took on flesh. He became a man and had a conscience just like ours, but his conscience never accused him because he lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. He is the one person who ever lived who never experienced a guilty thought. His conscience was perfectly clean. And yet out of love for sinners like us, Jesus bore our sins upon his shoulders. He who had no sin became sin for us as he hung there on the cross. And for the first time, his conscience screamed. For the first time, he felt the full weight of a guilty conscience and experienced just wrath and divine judgment. For the first time, he was forsaken by his Father. It was a selfless sacrifice, and he did it for us. Friend, if even the foremost sinner like Paul who persecuted the church, if even he can be saved and have his conscience wiped clean of all guilt and shame, then there is definitely hope for you. Take care of your conscience this morning by washing it clean in the precious blood of our Savior. Let's draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised to save us is faithful. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness, for the promise of your gospel, for the precious blood of your Son, Jesus, through whom our consciences are cleaned, through whom we are forgiven, through whom we experience the newness of resurrection life. We thank you, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, will prick and prod as you see fit in our hearts this morning, that we may come out of this place having been ministered to, by, to, ministered to by you and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.